Turn in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. At the beginning of chapter 12, the author presented Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith, the supreme witness to the fact that God can be trusted, that eternal joy is to be found at his right hand and not anywhere else in this world. Jesus has become for us by virtue of his work for us as our high priest, the guarantee that we will in fact one day draw near to the God for whom we so long. So we should now lay aside everything that weighs us down, lay aside the clinging sin mainly of unbelief, and run with endurance this race that's been set before us, looking to him that we might also find the way to God's right hand forever. As chapter 12 continues though, We're going to be greatly encouraged by the fact that God does not leave us on our own or to our own strength or commitment to do verse 2, to run that race. That is not the way the Christian life works. It is not synergistic. It is not God's work and my work together make a Christian or my work and God's work together get me home. Salvation is not getting us started in a race that now we are responsible to win, as though God has done his part, but the rest is up to you and I. Immediately following the command to run with endurance the race that is set before us is the author's description of the kind of father God is. That's where this goes. God is relentlessly committed to making sure we endure because we really are his children. So the author continues to urge us to keep our eyes on God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, it is too easy to get burnt out as believers. The Christian life is hard, mostly because we're trying to live each moment as a child of God by willpower and discipline and commitment. That is not how those of faith will endure to the end. We must believe and apply the approach given to us in the word of God. God shows His that his love for us is relentless in the way that the struggles and hardships in our lives actually reveal that we belong to him. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the time that you've given us this morning to open it together. And I pray, Lord, that the glory and the truth of Jesus Christ would shine clearly in these next moments. Please help me speak to that end and no other. Please help everyone be able to hear and understand and believe all of us together. Father, we ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verse 3 of chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look at that. Look at how clear that is. So the mind that is fixed on Jesus, consider him, just like earlier in verse 2, looking to Jesus, right? We just keep seeing that. The mind that is fixed on Jesus is the defense against burnout. There is no other defense. The author's goal in writing this letter is our endurance in the life of faith. Don't forget that. And this is the third time in Hebrews we've been instructed to put our eyes on Jesus, twice in verses 2 and 3 alone. I don't know how the Bible could be more clear about how central to the Christian life the cross of Jesus always remains. There is 
never a moment in the life of faith when Jesus suffering and dying for me is something other than the whole means by which I am saved and stay saved. We can't sing about the cross enough then. We can't talk about the cross enough. I can't preach about the cross enough. We can't have enough of the cross in Sunday school and children's church and Bible studies. There isn't another way, beloved. There isn't another way. Calvary is where the power for the believer is. It's nowhere else. The more my mind is fixed on what Jesus has done for me, the lighter the weight becomes that's weighing me down. The suffering of Jesus, the hostility he suffered on the cross and all its shame is not only for our salvation, but was also to help us keep running when we are being battered on every side and from within. So as we struggle through the life of faith, we should constantly be reminding ourselves that we're walking the way of Jesus. That's the way it is. We're not on some foreign alien path where God isn't aware or must not care or doesn't see. There you go. (laughs) Somebody's audio Bible. We should learn to see struggles that result from attempting to keep our eyes fixed on him as part of what it means to belong to him. Remember 1113, we are strangers and exiles here. We aren't meant to find a home here. That is going to result in tension and strife and trials. The apostle Peter tells us in this first letter, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. See, the link is always there. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. First Peter 4.12 The suffering that comes from trials is God active in our lives, teaching us to identify with Christ. We cannot identify with him apart from suffering, and we must identify with him in order to endure. Suffering is God's design for us. We're meant to long for home in order to get home. And in the longing, in the waiting, the focus for us is on Jesus. James 1, 2, and 3. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Testing is the wave, in Spurgeon's term, that throws us against the rock of ages. Excuse me. I I can't, um, by the way, just so you know, I'm not fully with you this morning because the right side of my head is, there's nothing, right? Like my ear is completely, I can't hear anything. I feel like I'm kind of off balance. So if I'm not, that's what's going on, all right? It's it's biological, it's not spiritual, I I think. All I had on New Year's Eve was some sparkling grape juice, and that's, that's, uh, I did the best I could. But th- this is why, these things are why I, I, I tend to harp on false teaching as your pastor. I'm, I'm not trying to win a popularity contest. It, it, we have to endure. We have to endure. The, the very fact that that's the word the Bible uses implies that there's opposition, right? There's no coasting. It's endurance. Endurance is not natural. You have to be trained to endure. And if we buy in, like this is, this is critical because it's in the evangelical air, 
right? If we buy into some type of your best life now, right? I'm going to live victorious, so I'm never going to have to struggle. Or, and or, struggle means I must be doing something wrong. I must not be living up to my, my potential, right? If, if, if we, if we live there, we are not going to be able to identify with Jesus who suffered to the degree that we need to in order to endure. Embracing the suffering of Jesus as a means of informative instruction in your life. So, in other words, it's, it's constant, it's deliberate. That is the defense. Focusing on Jesus suffering for us is the defense against you and I growing weary or faint-hearted. Right? We, we have to constantly keep in our minds how far Jesus had to go to obtain the salvation for us that he has because he did. Right? He did. I want us to think about the author's direction here. He, he's moving towards this idea that our suffering is not a sign of God's disapproval, but is the sign of the fact that we are his and that he loves us as a father. That's what the author is doing here. Notice what follows this in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now that verse makes some things very clear. First of all, the Christian life is a struggle against sin. That's what marks it. Everything that doesn't come from faith in our lives is sin. Romans 14, 23. When we are struggling with sin, it's because we are in that moment, however we're doing it, unbelieving what God has said, who God is. We doubt that God's promises are true. We doubt that his word is best for us. Therefore, we struggle and are tempted and so often give in to temptation. We struggle as Christians with everything, right? To bring everything in our lives into alignment with the new life inside of us. We know this. We all know this. We all feel this. It's constant. And yet God is saying to us in light of our constant ongoing struggle in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That comes on the heels of verse three. And the point is that the suffering that put an end to our sin was suffered by Jesus on our behalf. We are not fighting that battle. We are not fighting a battle to gain our salvation. We aren't suffering to save ourselves. We aren't suffering to save anyone else. We are suffering because God has made us alive to the reality of this promise that was talked about all through chapter 11. We see things now from afar that were completely invisible to us before we were born again, while at the same time, constantly feeling the pull of the world, living in the world, living in our flesh. Therefore, the command to us is to consider him who did suffer that much, shed his blood, because he endured. Jesus is the proof that you and I will get through our struggle against sin. Keep looking to Jesus is the point of the text. You will stay right where you need to be when your mind and your heart and your soul are fixed all the time on what Jesus has accomplished for you. Look at how the author builds on this. Look at 5 through 7. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there who his father does not discipline? Beloved, God is addressing you every moment because of Christ as his sons. Not as his employees. Not as aliens. Not as strangers. That's why he brings in Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. Going all the way back to the text in the Old Testament, reminding us that we, these people, us by the Spirit, are His people. And sons, that's who we are, experience. You say, well, what if, what if, what if I'm, a, I'm a lady, I'm a daughter? The point here is that all of the blessings of God fall to the son. You've been, we've been wrapped up in that together, right? Sons experience the discipline of their father. That's part of what it means to be a son. Now, when you hear that, how do you hear it? Do you hear it? Do you hear that discipline comes to you? Do you hear that as a son? You have to. You have to. If we take our eyes off of what Jesus has done for us, if that's not where we're looking all the time, when we read that, we'll read discipline. The only way earthbound people know how to read it And discipline for us is what happens to someone when they've done something wrong and made their father angry. That's how we think of discipline. Even grammatically speaking, that is not how we should read this verse. This is not discipline that solely carries the connotation of having done something wrong and now we're being punished for it. The word for discipline here has a much wider range than that. And we see that as it's used all throughout scripture. We're talking about providing guidance for responsible living. We're talking upbringing, training. It, 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 the word speaks to the state of being brought up properly. It includes all of those things, this word. God disciplines. He chastens us because we are his children. He is not punishing us for doing wrong. He is not lashing out at us in anger. You see, this is why consider Jesus becomes so important because what did Jesus do? Absorbed all of God's anger at me on himself at the cross. It doesn't exist anymore. God is not an unjust judge. God is raising us to be his children throughout every moment of our struggle with sin and hardship. Sometimes there is pain because we need course corrected. Other times, most of the time, they are just growing pains. As we try to live by faith in this world, it is going to hurt. It's going to hurt, right? It hurts to be pulled off of the world and latched on to heaven. It's not natural to us. Everything in us works against this. And in his mercy, God is telling us in Hebrews 12, 7, think of all of that hardship and struggle as the loving hand of your father who will not let you feel at home where you aren't at home. Not as some sign that you're not his child. Because human beings don't normally do discipline very well. Discipline is rarely about, genuinely about what's good for the person receiving it, we most, most of us have experienced when we've pushed somebody to the brink and they snap. Right? So, you know, we, we, discipline is what happens when I can misbehave until you get to three. Right? You, I'm gonna count, you, you better not, I'm gonna count to three. 
cool. I'm going to disobey until you get to three and then I'm going to stop. Right. Or mom, 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 mom. You can, you can hear it in your sleep sometimes. Dad, dad, dad. Right. And eventually you snap and you get disciplined. So we, we associate discipline with that's what happens when I push so far that I finally make them respond. The Bible is so clear. Right? It, it, l- l- listen to verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, illegitimate children and not sons. We are all working and obeying and striving so that we might have the good life free of any hardship. And the life of hardship is the sign that we are his children. All right, so do you understand how demonic and deceitful the false teaching is that as Christians you would even expect a life of ease? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Look at the life of the only fully obedient son that ever lived. Right? Jesus was never enduring hostility in his life because he was a sinner and had made mistakes. Ever. Consider him. And all he did was endure hostility and struggle and trial. Didn't his life merit some ease? I mean, didn't his life merit some blessing and some privilege? He was crucified. Well, because God is sadistic? No, because this isn't home. Consider your sufferings and trials biblically. Never assume difficulty means God is against you. Even if it's the guilt we feel in conviction when we sin, that is still his hand of love. It is not his hand of wrath. Consider Jesus. God's wrath towards you was absorbed by Jesus. He is the propitiation. He always will be. God's discipline is not, all right, that's enough. You've pushed me long enough. You've pushed me far enough. Now you get a whipping. Right? That's not what biblical discipline in Hebrews 12 is. And if, if we, again, when you're not considering Jesus, that's the only way you can think of discipline is as just punitive punishment for mistakes made. It's not the kind of father he is because Jesus is in between us. And this is the heart of God for us. God doesn't have a short fuse. God doesn't lash out. He doesn't overreact. Right? He doesn't have to come back and apologize again for going too far. Right? He never has to do that. This is godly discipline. This is the discipline of the perfect father. This is what discipline was always meant to look like and to be. Look at verses 9 and 10. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Look at how focused the argument is. As we grow older as people, we can look back and see the benefit of discipline in our lives. Even if it was punitive, even if it was punishing us for doing wrong. The worst, worst whooping I ever got. I was 16 years old. Okay. My mom 
kept telling me to take out the trash. Well, I don't know who she thought she was. But she kept telling me to take out the trash. I didn't want to do it. I mouthed off to her and she raised her hand to slap me. And I put my hands up. Like, okay, to my mother. Unbeknownst to me, my father is there watching the whole thing from behind, which I think is rather deceitful, but it is what it is. <laughs> Grabs my shoulder, whips me around, and let me just put it this way. Do you know how many times after that moment I did that to my mom? Rhymes with hero. Okay? Now, at the time, that was awful. Now, it is as clear as day to me how badly I needed that whooping. How badly I needed it. At the time, I just couldn't stand my dad for that, right? I got so mad at my mom, right? Now, I see that moment so differently. And I, I honestly think, what kind of man do you become if, 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 if the dad isn't there to check your behind when you think you can raise your hands to your mother, right? Yeah, I, I did. I'm your pastor. I did that when I was 16. It's not a good look. It's, it's just, but I'll tell you what, like I said, to this day, I was talking about it last Sunday night, to this day, I don't mess with my mom. <laughs> to this day. But you, you, you can see it when you, when you look back, right? You can see it's very, the Bible's very clear at, at the time. It's painful, but, but later we, un, we come to understand its benefit. You can see that. The point is you can see that kind of thing, even from an earthly father who we are all flawed, right? You can see the benefit of, of even punitive discipline from a, with a flawed earthly father who most of the time, the best an earthly father can do probably is just, well, I, I, I meant well, right? I, I meant well. My, my desires were good. Beloved, God as father, doesn't ever just mean well. He is always right. He is always just. He is always good. He is never irrational due to anger. Ever. You remember the rest of the Bible when you read every verse. By a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has covered our sins once and for all. He is not ever lashing out at you. He is not causing you to feel guilt or pain or restlessness or separation because he just can't stand you right now because of what you did. That never happens. Jesus really endured all of it for you. We can look at the cross and because of it, we can really believe Jesus when he says to us, listen, trust me. This is what the text is driving out here. Your sins hurt me a lot more than they have ever hurt you. And I'm committed to finishing your salvation and seeing you cross the finish line of this race. And my, and this race. And my father, our father, will make you miserable in your sins to bring you back to me. If that's what it takes. Because why? Because he's making us holy. He's setting us apart for our heavenly home. It's what it means to be holy. Remember Jesus and what he was looking towards in verse 2. You remember that? Same thing. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Trained by it. The same word. 
Same semantic range. That's what's happening here. The more God moves in our lives to show us our need for Jesus, the less and less our shortcomings and sins and failures will make us think maybe Jesus isn't enough. The more we're trained by his hand pursuing us, no matter what we're doing, he's relentless, won't let us go. That's training us not to get comfortable in our sins, but to make us realize he covers sinners completely all the way to the end. The less that struggle will make us doubt our salvation as he works on us and presses into us. Rather than making us doubt, it will instead be the sign from God in our lives that we have salvation. That's what we'll learn over time. God will not ever let you think you're good enough to get it on your own. Or maybe with just some help. He's going to train you that we're bankrupt and only Jesus can pay the bill. Learning to lean only on Jesus and never on your works or effort is how the fruit of righteousness is produced, beloved. We say that again. All right? Listen to the text. Learning to lean only on Jesus and never on your works, considering Jesus, focusing on what he has done, is how the fruit of righteousness is produced in the life of the believer. Again, it's not the fruit of righteousness is not produced by the flesh. It's not produced by willpower. It's not produced by commitment. It's produced by the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? Testifies to us of Jesus and what he has done. Look at verses 12 through 14. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Therefore, did you hear that at the beginning of verse 12? Therefore, because you are sons, that's what, that's what therefore means. Because you are sons, there, so there are horizontal implications we find here for being vertically at peace with God, but the instructions only follow the affirmation, right? Because you are the sons of God and the hardships and struggle we endure are evidence of that, lift up your drooping hands. Right? Don't, don't live in self-pity. Don't droop. You are a son of God. Strengthen your weak knees. You have to run and make straight paths for your feet. Beloved, settle it is what that's telling us. All your hope, all your life, the means of your salvation are all found in Christ in this message of his great salvation, the gospel. One path, one way, streamlined, narrow, Only him. When we take our eyes off of Jesus and put them on ourselves and our sins and shortcomings and failures or on others and their sins and shortcomings and failures, look right where he goes with the instructions. When we do that, when we're not considering Jesus, it causes tension in us that interrupts the body of Christ's ability to be the refuge and oasis it should be for us in this world. Right Where there is conflict in a church, I guarantee you, if you peel away the layers, there is a lack of belief in the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus every time without exception. The Bible ties what is not peaceful in the church to not considering Jesus. 
It is as clear as day. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. No horizontal fighting makes sense if that is true. So strive for peace with everyone. Yes, even that person. But then also strive. There's a second one. Now that we believe in the gospel is the key to unity and peace in the church. But then also strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What? Whoa. What kind of holiness is that? A holiness so holy it can allow a human being to see God? Tony, how perfect do we have to be? I thought you said, beloved, remember what we've read. How does one draw near to the Lord? Right, to see Him. How does one get close? How does one move from God being invisible to seeing Him? What, what have we learned in Hebrews 11 and 12? There's a word for that. The word is faith. So the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, that which is counted as righteousness, remember, is the faith that banks on him completely to save until you get to him. That is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Complete faith in Jesus alone to save me. There are not two ways to get saved. And you find out the second one in Hebrews 12. So it's, it's, I get saved by grace and I have to be holy enough to see him. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. There's not another way. The holiness that opens our eyes to see the Lord, think about chapter 11, is faith in the Lord. The discipline of God is meant to produce that, that that can see him and gets us home. This holiness is not a state of sinlessness. We're struggling against sin all the time. According to verse 3. That would undo the whole text if we said you have to reach a state of sinlessness. Like I grew up believing. In the church I was a part of. That would undo the whole text here. It would undo the rest of scripture if we said that. That actually in order to see the Lord you have to be. You have to possess sinless perfection. Which for some reason we equate with holiness. Holiness is, is utter set apartness. It's faith even in the midst of a struggle with sin. That would really be faith. Because you can't see what you're looking to when you're struggling with sin. You can only see what you're struggling with. Faith in the midst of that is faith. That is really dependent on Jesus as a great Savior to say, I don't even feel you right now, but I believe what you said and what you would love and, and that you would love and save even me. I believe that you can save to the uttermost. That's where I am. Like Hebrews 7.25 says you can do. So I'm just, I'm just going to bank on you being that good of a savior. That is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, there's no salvation. There's no seeing the Lord, but by grace through faith. Right? And, and Hebrews 11.6 lets you know that if, if the salvation is to see the Lord. that In faith there is this desire to draw near to Him. Not just to have the books clean so that we don't go to hell. Right? There, there's, there's more than that going on. Look at the first part of verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So again, that's what he's talking about in 14. 
And that comes by faith, not by works. Obtaining the grace of God doesn't come by works. It comes by faith. Pick it up in the middle of 15. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. That's twice now. Strive for peace with everyone. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up twice now. Unity in the church has been tied to being trained by God to consider Jesus, right? It's, it's there. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. A lack of focus on the grace of God, the failure to consider Jesus and look to him results in sinfulness in the body of Christ that is absolutely deadly to the body of Christ. We think that by our focus on morality, we're hindering sin. When in reality, we're just encouraging hypocrisy. When you make repentance a sign of weakness and like a, like a scarlet letter on someone that they, they, that they're always repenting that And we are given as a defense against that kind of thinking the tragedy of Esau in verse 17. We read it again. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Wait a minute. So after all that, after everything we have read in Hebrews, does this mean that we can reach a point where God won't let us repent anymore and we lose our souls even though we were once his. Well, it certainly seems that way on a quick reading, which is why you don't do quick readings. No, this text does not mean, and the purpose of the warning is not to tell us you can reach a point where it's just too late and you 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 can't come back even if once you were a son. First of all, beloved, you have to read the Bible with the understanding that Scripture interprets Scripture. This is critical. And it's a good rule of thumb that very clear scripture is how we interpret less than clear scripture, right? When you read something difficult, your mind should be able to say with the rest of scripture, well, I know it can't mean that because of all these other things. So the first thing we do when we come to a difficult text like this one is ask, okay, does my interpretation of this one text fit with the rest of scripture? And if our interpretation of Verses 16 and 17 is, okay, as a son of God, you can reach a point where you sin so much that God will not let you come back. Even if you were weeping and crying, we have to question that interpretation because it will not jive with the rest of Scripture at all. That wouldn't jive with the rest of Hebrews and what it teaches about the nature of the redemption Jesus has obtained by his blood for those who believe in him, let alone the whole Bible. True sons of God, which is the context here. True sons of God cannot finally be lost. There is too much scripture that makes that clear to let this one difficult verse undo all of them. Let's realize something very important here that you have to know going into this text. Esau was not a true child of God. He was never God's son. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Romans 9.13, quoting Malachi 1, 2, and 3. So, the experience of Esau is not given to us here to describe an experience that one who is a legitimate son could experience. That's not why he's here. He was never that. Esau is brought forward for us out of the Old Testament 
just like all the witnesses of faith were in chapter 11, here in chapter 12, because he is a witness to the absence of faith. Esau knowingly sold his birthright. He gave it away for a bowl of stew in one moment because he was hungry. When he decided later that he wanted his inheritance back, it was too late. It belonged to Jacob, no matter how hard he cried about it or wanted it. The author is bringing Esau in here to say to us, in the context of failing to obtain the grace of God, in verse 15, he's saying to us, don't trade in the means by which you are saved. Your inheritance, it's all grace. Don't try to obtain it on your own. You'll lose it. Don't trade it all in because the moments get difficult. Don't trade it all in. Don't trade grace for works because you're struggling. Don't trade assurance for unbelief because you're struggling. You have an inheritance. Don't throw it away. That's a loss of faith. And without the faith that makes us holy, no one will see the Lord. The warnings are how God keeps us on the path. His point here in verse 16 is the difference between a better possession and an abiding one in 1034 and a single meal here in 12, 16 and 17. Esau forfeited his inheritance. You and I must not forfeit the only thing that can save us. That's what the letter has been driving at the whole time. Don't stop believing the gospel. Don't let the struggle you endure to run this race make you think you aren't a son. Did you hear that? Don't let the struggle you endure to run this race make you think that you aren't a son. That's the whole point of this text. What is the author's overall message here? What is he trying to tell us? God, your father, is fully committed to your endurance, to making sure you see Jesus as the only worthwhile reward, to making sure you get to him. He loves you. He disciplines you. And makes you feel the weight of running from him because you're his child and he wants you to make it home. So don't quit. Don't trade home for what you feel in the moment, no matter how hard the struggle is. Beloved, you and I have to know every day how relentless our father's love is for us. He will not let you go. You are pursued because you are his and you cannot get away. He moves heaven and earth to save us. So there's no limit to what he'll do to get us home. Lift your drooping hands. The prodigal son was always a son. Even when he had his face in pig slop. Lift your drooping hands. Stop the constant self-inspection that kills you. Strengthen your weak knees. Don't wallow in guilt. You have the promise. Stand up. And make straight paths for your feet. Fix your eyes on Jesus. One direction. Don't forget that you are sons, he's saying here. Endure the hardship that comes from running from God as the very deliberate, loving, purposeful discipline of a father who loves you, who is training you to live in another world. God is eternally committed to your salvation. Don't trade it in for stew. Hardship and struggle mean you are being raised by a perfect father. Don't look at it as a sign that you aren't his, but as the sign that you are. God shows that his love for us is relentless in the way the struggles and hardships in our lives actually reveal that we belong to him. Do you belong to him? 
Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation? And if you do, don't doubt him. Don't ever doubt him. The front will be open this morning if any of you need to come and pray for any reason at all. If you want to talk about how to know Christ, if you want to join our church as a member, if you'd like to be baptized, you're welcome to come at this time. I'll be down front, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished. I thank you for the perfection of your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would write it on our hearts for our joy and our hope, and that you would move in every soul in this room that we might be aware of how desperately we are in need of your son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.